The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501c3 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of new media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome to the Formed Book Club, where we continue our discussion of G.K. Chesterton's book, or a collection of his essays, called In Defense of Sanity, the best essays of G.K. Chesterton selected by Dale Alquist, Joseph Pierce, and Aidan Mackey. And uh, we made it up to about page 20, seems to me, but we did have a little introductory material that I maybe went too long on, uh, so it should go a little more quickly now. However, it's easy to get, I won't say bogged down, it's easy to get uh, distracted when reading Chesedon because there's so much there to reflect on. But shall we begin with, with on running after one's hat? Yes, indeed. I have the first sentence highlighted, so if you'd like me to, to commence, I'll happily do so. Okay, I can't beat that one. <laughs> well, you know, it basically begins, well, I'll read the first sentence. I feel an almost savage envy on hearing that London has been flooded in my absence while I am in the mere country. My own Battersea has been, I understand, particularly favoured in a meeting of the waters. So, um... Again, we have, I would say this is an element, there's an element of a provocativeness here, right? Because, you know, people that are actually in the middle of a, being flooded. Right. Uh, it's not, it's not by any rule stretch of the imagination pleasant. Um, but, but I think that's the whole point. I mean, again, we talked about the, the Chestertonian paradox and conceit, uh, last, last, last week, where you actually deliberately turn someone on their head to make them think. And that's what he's done here. And then he has this image of his own Battersea, and he uses names of certain roads, which I actually know quite well, looking like Venice, right, with, 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 you know, with the, uh, the various tradesmen rowing down the streets uh, as if they're in gondoliers. Um, but, you know, the, but the key thing about it is, you know, if you could be, you could be a pedant or an, or an irate taxpayer, as I think he indignant ratepayer, as he calls it, and, and, and not see what he's getting at. But the point is, of course, that suffering – in one sense or another, is a part and parcel of life, and it's what we do with it. And that's exactly you know, what Chesterton's saying in this essay, which is why it ends with, and I mean, obviously you can go back, but it ends with that very well-known aphorism of his, an adventure is only an inconvenience rightly considered. An inconvenience is only an adventure wrongly considered. You know, and really, that sums it up. And yet, yeah, you might not want to be in the flood. You might not want to experience the cross in, in any, any of its forms. I mean, he'd be somewhat perverse if he actually wanted to. But, but you're going to have to anyway. So what are you going to do with it when it happens? That's, that's the, the real thing about this essay, I think. But in this case, it wasn't a tsunami. He mentions in here that no one was really harmed. You lost some property or there were some things got damp or wet or soggy. But it was an inconvenience rather than some kind of sort of tragic event. And I think his yes. point, as you said, Joseph, is that 
how do we deal with inconveniences? You do it like I do and get mad and swear up and down and, you know, and be upset? Or do you be like Chester and, and, and imagine what it's really like and uh, enjoy it as an adventure? And to try to see it through the eyes of children, again, because that's what he does here. I mean, he talks about, did you ever hear a small boy, this is page 22 towards the top, did you ever hear a small boy complain of having to hang about a railway station and wait for a train? And he says, because to him, when the wooden arm of the signal falls down suddenly, it is as if a great king had thrown down his staff as a signal and started a shrieking tournament of train. I, am, I myself am a little boy's habit in this matter. They also serve who only stand and wait for the 215. <laughs> I know, it's great. It's great stuff. The other point, uh, Joseph, all the places you underlined were exactly the things I did too. But I also wanted to point out how he mentions that sometimes these inconveniences, like the, t the uh, title, Running After One's Hat, they're not only inconvenient, they're also humiliating sometimes. Yes. And, and, and comic that, are, that being a human being, these humiliating experiences do have kind of a comic uh, element to them. And if we can just laugh at ourselves. So I just have to tell the story of the time I literally ran after my hat on the 4th of July on a crowded beach in San Francisco where everybody was out for the fireworks or whatever. And I ran many yards after my straw hat that had blown off in the wind. And when I retrieved it and looked up and saw that all these people were looking at me, some of them laughing, some of them sort of clapping, some of them, I took a very dramatic bow, you know, like this. And then I got this uproarious applause and praise and bravos and everything else. And so I have, every time I see Chesterton talk about running after a hat, you know, yes, was it embarrassing to realize all these people had been watching me? I'm not a very good runner. I can tell you that right now. And yet there was a comedy. And why not just why not just be a comic entertainment for your neighbors occasionally? And I, and I like the fact that, you know, the, the, the other paradox running through this is that the only person that can't be humiliated is the person with humility. You know, so insofar as we feel humiliated, it's our pride that's being hurt, and it's good for how pride to be pricked. And that's basically what he's saying here. And I love also, you know, about how ridiculous it is to run after one's hat. He says, the same people run much more eagerly after an uninteresting little leather ball than they will after a nice silk hat. <laughs> <laughs> you have tens of thousands of people watching a soccer match, right? That's really interesting. But And then a man running after a hat is not half so ridiculous as a man running after a wife. <laughs> well, I'll tell a little story, too. When I was a young boy, maybe 10 or 12 years old, I had a pair of work boots, which I called clodhoppers. And uh, one day I was looking for them, went into the garage, went into my room, uh, went out in the yard. And uh, I finally went into my mom and said, Mom, where are my clodhoppers? She said, well, you're holding them in your hand. Oh. <laughs> so it, was, it was humiliating. It was, it was funny, you know. Some of these yeah. humiliating experiences are, in fact, funny. And I think Chesterton is inviting us into the adventure of life and the comedy of life. Yes. Need a childlike 
wonder and humility to be able to do both of those things. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yep. Yep. So shall we move on to woman? Ah, uh, yes. I have nothing to say about woman. <laughs> <laughs> I love this essay. I read it many years ago. Uh, and I have to say, at the time that I read it, I think I was raising small children. I was spending a good deal of my day just in the common um, drudgery of, of, of taking care of a home and family and all of that. And um, there are times I think most women, when you're in the midst of that season of life, you can feel sorry for yourself and uh, take your woes much more seriously than they deserve. And I read this at that time and it was so illuminating, liberating um, to, to hear Chesterton talk about, look, what is the plight of the average man, right? But to put one brick on top of the other and add one number together and, and, uh, and it, it just completely changed my perspective. I think Chesterton from the bottom of my heart for doing that for me. Well, there's another essay. I don't, don't think it's in this collection called The Universal Stick. I think it's in What's Wrong with the World. <laughs> he talks about the fact that, at least in former times, women had a lot of responsibilities to do all kinds of stuff, you know, where men were kind of focused on one boring thing, you know, every day. But there's one sentence, I think it's like something like this. And women rose up and said they will not be dictated to by men. And when I became stenographers. Yep. Yeah, yep. that's one I of think, his best. That's one of his best. Yeah. I read that one too, Father. And that too was so, uh, talk about liberating. Um, nothing like, you know, the um, bald truth to help you put things in perspective. On page 27 in the middle, he says, where the average woman is at the head of something with which she can do as she likes. The average man has to obey orders and do nothing else. Yep. That's right. The other thing that uh, I found so helpful, you know, women are always being accused of worrying too much. <laughs> but it's Chesterton who points out, I love this. Um, Where? On page 26, he says, uh, because we are worried about a thing, it does not follow that we are not interested in it. The truth is the other way. If we are not interested... Why on earth would we, should we be worried? Women are worried about housekeeping, but those that are the most interested are the most worried. Women are still more worried about their husbands and their children. And I suppose if we strangled the children and poleaxed the husbands, it would leave women free for higher <laughs> So we don't have to worry so much. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. It's great. Anything else on uh, women? All right, well. Let's pass on to a piece of chalk. You know, once again, Chesterton, you know, reflects on the most common things. Yeah, what I, what I love about this is, is just the whole scenario that he's, you know, he's out in the countryside. He wants to, we know, you know we need to remember Chesterton began as an artist before he became a writer. And uh, an actual fact, uh, no, you can't climb the wall any longer. I have a Chesterton drawing. He's a very good artist. So, yeah, he wants to sketch things, and he's, the most important color's missing. The white chalk's missing. And then, you know, again, it's the one line here on page 34. Then I suddenly stood up and roared with laughter again and again, so that the cows stared at me and called a committee. 
first of all, I love that description of cows calling a committee because, you know, they just come together and look at you. But, you know, he's sitting on a whole mountain of chalk. The whole countryside, the whole landscape is made of white chalk, the color he needs. And again, you know, what, what's the point? What, what's he really getting at here is that we have, we're surrounded, right, by these great gifts that, that should take our breath away, the grandeur of God, as, 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 uh, as Hopkins would say. Um, and yet we, we, we're blind to it most of the time because we're so myopic with our own sort of pride uh, our, that we don't actually see the bigger picture. And even when it's staring us in the face or even when we're physically sitting on it, which is the case in this essay. And on page 33, two lines down, he says, one of the wise and awful truths which this brown paper art reveals, so he was just writing on a piece of brown paper, you know, he's sketching on a piece of brown paper, is this, that white is a color. And then further on, the chief assertion of religious morality is that white is a color. Virtue is not the absence of vices or the avoidance of moral dangers. Virtue is a vivid and separate thing, like pain or particular smell. I mean... In fact, even even in terms of physics, it's all the colors together. Yes, that's right. Yeah, white is all the colors. Yes, light anyway. I mean, white as a pigment is something different from light. Right. Light contains all the colors, but still, his playing with this in this way, and this is just so so uh, exemplary. Uh, of, of Chesterton, what he does with life, what he does with things, he moves from the concrete in the micro, and then he can move to this macro view of things, but then also to this analogical thinking. What does white mean symbolically? Purity and chastity and virtue and all these things, and does all of this in just a few pages. Yes, and it's again back to Thomas Howard. Basically, his imagination is not creative. It's really discovery. He discovers the connections which are already in things, but that yes. we overlook because we you know, get too used to things. Yes. Should we go on to what I found in my pocket? Yes, please. Well, I have something before the first line, Joseph, so I can definitely. <laughs> well, I have the first sentence, but you beat me in that case. Okay. <laughs> uh, and because... You know, in this essay, he gets goes in his pocket and he sees all these things and he, he gives them, they're all significant for him, you know. And in the spiritual exercise of St. Ignatius, the last exercise in the exercises is called the contemplatio ad amorem, the contemplation of retaining divine love. And in it, Ignatius wants to reflect on our whole life, what we received here, our parents, you know, the air we breathe, physics, all these things, how God is working there. The idea was, is to see God in all things. And Chesterton takes us a great distance along that path because he begins to see everything and everything, which then allows us to see the transcendent and the divine in concrete things as well. Now your first sense, Joseph. Go ahead. Well, yes. I, mean, I love the way this begins in the first paragraph here because, you know, we live in a, a, a myopic world that tries to or a dualistic world politically where everyone has to be either right wing or left wing. And, you know, we, we hear about the Christian right and the socialist left. Chesterton cut through all that cant. You know, it's about right and wrong. So here, you know, he's attacking imperialists. He's attacking the conservatives of his, of, of his age, those who are talking about the British Empire and, you know, about being 
good and upstanding. Once when I was very young, I met one of those men who have made the empire what it is. Now, of course, that superficially, that's a good thing, right? You've made the empire what it is. But, of course, there's a deliberate uh, ambiguity and ambivalence the way Cheston put it. And this man basically says, you know, a man can't get on nowadays by banging about with his hands in his pockets. You know, be a man. Take your hands out of your pockets. I may reply with a quite obvious flippancy that perhaps a man got on by having his hands in other people's pockets. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and again, this is 1909. Chesterton first met Hilaire Belloc in 1900, when both of them were opposing the British Empire's uh, um, imperialist, imperialist defense of the gold and, and, and diamond industry in South Africa in the Boer War. Now, basically, the British Empire was brought, no, the globalist empire was brought to uh, defend global corporations against the small man, right? And Chesson and Bellart were on the side of the small man. So we see here, you know, that, that, that we, we, we can't just talk about our country being great and, and what have you. Things are a little bit more complex than that. Yeah, and of course, that, that also leads up to the, the, the setting the scene for the, whole, for the whole essay. I've only once in my life picked a pocket and then... Perhaps through some absent-mindedness, I picked my own. <laughs> <laughs> well, to 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 father's uh, point, that all that about the background of this, Joseph, is so helpful, and that's what's nice having you on board here because you actually know more than the rest of us, and probably more than most about Chesterton. Um, but to get to his theme that father uh, mentioned on page thirty-six, down at the bottom, he says. Now, I deny most energetically that anything is or can be uninteresting. And that is his genius, really, that he can take the commonest of things and show you it's interesting. Yeah, there's a scene in Chesterton's novel, The Bull and the Cross, which intrigues me. And I've spent sort of years sort of contemplating it. The, 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 The hero's in a cell. Towards the end of it, and the set is completely just there's it's nothing. There's no pictures. It's just a cube, nothing to look at except there's a spike, an inexplicable spike sticking out of the one of one of the walls, right? And it, and what I love about it is that Chesterton, you know, that most people are are maddened by the spike because it's all they can look at. And what on earth is it for? It has no use, no function, right? But but the mystic, the holy man, that's all he needs. <laughs> He spent all his time basically mystically contemplating on this thing that's sticking out that's different from everything else. Um, and again, you know, what's uninteresting here? I mean, nothing, if you actually can understand it the way the Cheston does. Very good. <laughs> sure. <laughs> we'll return to the Foreign Book Club with Father Joseph Bezio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, Tune in and so many more. 
And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to The Formed Book Club with Father Joseph Bezio, Vivian Dudrow, and Joseph Pierce. Should we go on to on lying in bed? Absolutely. I would, I would if you let me first, though. I love the fact that the previous essay does end. <laughs> he brings out everything from his pocket, and his, his bottomless pocket, and said, no, I can tell you one thing, however, that I could not find in my pocket. I allude to my railway ticket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The one thing... He needed, he didn't have all these other random objects, which yeah. might come in handy. You never know when some of these things might come handy, like a pocket knife, but still. he. And I, and I love the way he talks about his pockets in terms of the, you know, the depths of the ocean. He says that I would be surprised. There'd be nothing I found in there that would surprise me except perhaps money. Yeah. <laughs> you got to love it. Sorry, on lying in bed. On lying in bed, again, you know, I guess he had to write articles every couple of days, and so he had to find So he would write about whatever, uh, you know, struck his fancy. Uh, I had no particular comments on this chapter. Well, what I loved about it, on page 41, if there is one thing worse than the modern weakening of major morals... It is the modern strengthening of minor morals. And he goes on to talk about cleanliness. Thus, it's not, it is considered more withering to accuse a man of bad taste than of bad ethics. Cleanliness is not next to godliness nowadays, for cleanliness is made an essential and godliness is regarded as an offense. A playwright can attack the institution of marriage so long as he does not misrepresent the manners of society. So then he goes on to this waking up early, having been turned into a modern virtue, you know, as if it were part of essential morals. This is the bottom of the paragraph to get up early in the morning. It is upon the whole part of practical wisdom 
but there's nothing good about it or bad about its opposite. So his main point being that we have this tendency to turn things that are really mere fads or our own personal preferences into morals, absolute morals. I mean, take the modern fads right now of, not that there isn't some value to them, like recycling or, or uh, you know, conservation. Or I mean, there's, there's benefits to these things, surely. But we've inverted the pyramid of the hierarchy yeah. of importance, right? Where so you, you're, you're walking down deal. the sidewalk and you are vituperating someone for not wearing a mask as you walk into Planned Parenthood and have your child aboard. I mean, you know, it's... Uh, right. That's yeah, right. I, I would say one thing um, somewhat flippantly about on lying uh, in bed. Obviously, Cheston's one who likes to do that in the morning. Susanna said to me when we first got married, um, because I'm the early bird in the family, she's the night owl. So I'm the one that gets up full of life in the morning and she's the one that crawls out of bed. Uh, and she said that the, the big problem was that the at the beginning of the world, but the early birds got up first and made the rules before the rest of us woke up. <laughs> well, I think it, I think uh, Winston Churchill got up at about ten in the morning, and then took a leisurely bath, and then you know, and then finally got around to the business of state. You know, so there's different types to make the world. The go Holy, the Holy Spirit oh, gives different <laughs> gifts to different people. Yep, that's right. Indeed. And he gave me the gift of lying in bed. No, I don't know. All right. On to the diabolist. Well, well, wait, Father. Then oh. you need to take his final caution at the end of the chapter, which okay. is, if you do lie in bed, be sure you do it without any reason or justification at all. <laughs> <laughs> you just got to love this man. Yeah, exactly. Chance to be a fine thing is what I would say, but that's another matter. Um, <laughs> so on to the diabolist. Oh, yeah. this is the most riveting, terrifying, I think, thing that Chesterton has ever written. Uh, yeah, I think the, the thing about this is that, you know, it, it does, it, 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 it jars in a good sense uh, because it lacks all of the sort of humor and whimsicality of what's what's come before it because he's in, in absolute earnest about the evil that he experienced in the real life real life episode of his life here and uh it's all the more shocking coming in the midst of all of the the you know the good humor yes yes and what's shocking about it is meeting a man uh a fellow art student and of course all the things he says about art school as having family members who've gone to art school. <laughs> anyway, I can attest that they're all true. Um, but he meets this young man who basically is de uh, descending deliberately and willfully into evil. And, and having this just very commonplace sort of conversation with the man. And as it goes on, having this revelation that this, what this, where this man is headed it's just horrifying and may have been actually one of the things that prevented Chesterton himself from going more badly than already had up at that point, right? This was a turning point in Chesterton's own life, was it not? Absolutely. If we can contextualize this, I mean, he was at, uh, at art school in about 1890, 
which is right at the beginning of the fantasy ecla of the decade of decadence, you know, when, when Oscar Wilde emerges as the sort of godfather, that's the right word, of, of the decadent movement. Um, so uh, where would you find that at its most uh, powerful? Well, in an art school in London. And, and that's where Chesterton was, you know, and it, it was actually experiencing this evil, this Dorian Gray type scenario uh, that, that, sh- that was part of shocking him. Although he, it's, it's clear from the essay that he'd already recoiled in horror from the Schopenhauer type primal nihilism uh, towards something much more optimistic, if not if not, not if not Christian at this point. But, th- but it's meeting people like this, I think, that 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 that, that caused him to to say, "Okay, I'm not really sure what is good at the moment." but I do know what is evil. Right, and on page 45 at the bottom, Chesterton says, I hate modern doubt because it is dangerous. And the other man says, you mean dangerous from morality? He said in a voice of wonderful gentleness, I expect you're right, but why do you care about morality? I mean, that's a chilling question. Then on page 46, this is another sample of how Chesterton can illuminate us. There was a bonfire down below, and all of a sudden a big uh, amount of sparks came up. And Chesterton says, aren't those sparks splendid? Yes, he replied. That is all that I ask you to admit, said I. Give me those few red sparks, and I will deduce Christian morality. Again, why? Because there is a connection between everything and everything else. And if we admire these sparks, but they, they, they die out, well, then we, re- we know something about ephemeral pleasures. They die out. Uh, if you're just going to live your life from one spark to the next, then you're going to die out too. Uh, yeah, and, then- and also, I mean, also you know, even, I mean, I, I say this to people, to a, a atheist friends of mine uh, back in England, that, you know, that you give me a speck of dust. Because, you know, once you have a speck of dust, you have is. Right, <laughs> something exists. Mm-hmm. I mean, once something exists, then not just something exists, but something else exists that can perceive its existence. I mean, from that moment onwards, you're moving in the right direction. And then l- later on in that paragraph, he says, uh, "Only because your mother made you say thank you for a bun, are you now able to thank nature or chaos for those red stars of an instant, or for the white stars of all time?" Gratitude is another key attitude of Chesterton, uh, from which he derives a lot. The fact that we say thank you proves free will, right? Uh, and also, again, it's very Thomistic, because it is St. Thomas that says it's gratitude that opens the eyes to wonder. So, you know, it, it's only once we actually have the experience of gratitude, because we, we can see our, our eyes are, 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 are awakened. You know, and, and without and without that, they're closed in cynicism. That's the problem, I think, with this man, this diabolist, He's closed his eyes. He's not grateful. There's, a, there's no gratitude for his existence, only ingratitude. And gratitude is the first act of worship. Yes. It's the first step toward worship. And that's right. If we, if we lack gratitude, then uh, we're only worshiping our own desires. Right. That, you can't, you, you okay. can't worship God for who he is unless you have experienced what he has done, the good things he's done. I mean, adjure sequitur essay, as Thomas said, the, the activity follows one's own being. 
And so we don't know God in his being until he reveals himself by acting. And so when he acts, creates, gives, illuminates, we receive that. So you're right, Vivian, gratitude is the initial response that we have. But then that leads to, well, if this is so good for me, it must come from someone who's good in himself. And therefore, I can adore God as well as being thankful. What's so terrifying about this is that here Chesterton acknowledges that this man had a horrible fairness of the intellect that made me despair of his soul. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, a common I, I, harmless atheist would have denied that religion produced humility or humility is simple joy. But he admitted both. He only said, but shall I not find in evil a life of its own? Granted, for every woman I ruin, one of those red sparks will go out. Will not the expanding pleasure of ruin, dot, 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 right? Yeah. I mean, th this, this was really, uh, I mean, Chesterton at the end realizes, well, even uh, on page 46 up above, he says, I had an unmeaning sense of being tempted in the wilderness. And even as I paused, a burst of red sparks broke past. I mean, what's so amazing about this, here he's recording an event that happened. And yet all these ha things, he's seeing the meaning in, not as if he's ascribing meaning to them. No, while they're speaking, it's dark and there's a fire going on and these sparks are coming up. And sometimes there's a red glow. I mean, the whole scene is hellish and menacing and all these things. And- yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, the point is, though, this is this, and I'm, I'm completely agreeing with you, and I want, I want just to add to it, because, you know, we have later on in the, one of my favorite Chester essays we'll come to soon is A Shop of Ghosts, where he, he has a fanciful vision, right, which is clearly a, a work of imagination. Uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's writing as if it really happened. Right. And sort of something obviously happened which sparked him to go off in that direction. But here, there's none of that. This is very prosaic in the sense that He's just telling us what happened. This is something really happened. But, if you, but what's astonishing about it, it is like the beginning of a novel. So immediately after, the diabolist says, perhaps only, perhaps he said in his tired fair way, only what you call evil, I call good. And then, and then that's it, he leaves. But then, as Chester's going down the stairs, I heard the voice of one of the vilest of his associates say, nobody can possibly know. Right? So we don't know what it is that's being talked about. But they can get away with it. That's the that's the important thing, right? Um, and then I he hears these words. The Baptist says, "I tell you, I've done everything else. If I do that, I shan't know the difference between right and wrong." We, we, what we're getting here is a novel. This is a setting up of a novel, you know. So if, if you want to exist as a providence, and then how does it end? How does the novel end? That's the beginning of the novel, if you like. Three hundred pages later, I have since heard that he died. It may be said, I think, that he committed suicide, though he did it with tools of pleasure, not with tools of pain. God help him. I know the road he went, but I never, I have never known or even dared to think what was that place at which he stopped and refrained. I mean, we have a whole novel there in two paragraphs, the beginning and the end. And it's, it, where's, where's it come from? Not the imagination, not the fantasy, but from a real life uh, episode. And I think that, since you quoted, it's really critical. Only what you call evil, 
I call good. Yes. You know, it, it's, it's one thing to commit a sin or do something evil and know it's evil and repent. But when you say what is evil, and I bring up abortion here again, and say it's a good, then you're lost. You know, because yes. now you've called evil good. There's no hope. Yeah. And, well, you know, I, there was a real case in, in, in Chicago, at the University of Chicago. Oh, student, yeah. Who uh, I think was in the Great Book Programs, Great Books Program there at the University of Chicago and reading Dostoevsky. And this young man tried to put to the test Raskolnikov's uh, uh, pursuit in Crime and Punishment that if he murders somebody, he will, like this man says, I tell you, I've done everything else. If I do that, I shan't know the difference between right and wrong. That's exactly what Raskolnikov does in Dostoevsky's novel, Crime and Punishment. He goes and murders someone. And now, fortunately for Raskolnikov, he does repent. Uh, so, so there is hope. But um, this young man uh, in Chicago who, who tried to prove Raskolnikov's gamble was the right one, only he was not going to repent. I think that man came to a bad end. I think he did commit suicide. So that's what's so ch chilling about this essay is that this is true real life he's talking about here. And even though it can be masterfully portrayed in a novel, it's something that you can encounter on the steps of your art school. <laughs> it's, but, but, but perhaps the novel is the best way of, of, of highlighting it to everybody else, right? The one incident to universalize it, you do it with a work of fiction. But, you know, but what we're seeing here is the culture of death. As Father said, right, when people think that start saying that killing babies is good, you know you're in the presence of the diabolist. Yes. Good. Well, let us... Uh... Continue next week with The Twelve Men, another fine essay. Thank you for joining us on the... Father, how, how, how up to the end of the 20th essay? Yes, let's, let's read up to that far, yeah. We'll see if we get there. 10 right. through 20? Yeah. Yeah. 11 through 20, all technically, right. I think, but yes. All right. See you all next week. God bless you. Bye. If you enjoyed this discussion... Please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.